This is You'll Die Trying with Nathan Morris. You'll Die Trying contains sensitive subject matter and conversations surrounding death and dying and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is respectfully advised. Welcome back. Season 2, Episode 117 of You'll Die Trying, a podcast which pulls back the curtain, takes down the wall brick by brick, and exposes the hearts of the funeral directors providing the care. This one's going to get a little, a little tough. Don't say I didn't warn you. death, there are no sequences, no sequences of events. I mean, there is no rhyme or reason for things. No beginning, no middle, no end. First this, then this, and so on. One, two, three. Much like the phone ringing at 4.55 in the afternoon when you've done nothing all day and you're trying to lock up the funeral home for the night, you're on the last door. You can't control the death call you receive at that moment. This podcast, too, has no pattern. The stories will never be sequential. It's never just a little old lady lying in her bed, their family holding her feeble little hand. Sometimes it's much different. This is one of those moments where it's not big turkey foot coffee I'm drinking. Instead, it is a big glass of bourbon on the rocks. This is the story of the last call my wife, Megan, and I conducted together. We traveled westbound in our then 2012 Navy Grand Caravan. Dodge Grand Caravan. It smelled of chemicals and hot car. I don't know how else to describe it, but I know that you know that smell. Megan was six months pregnant with our first son. I'm not even sure why she wanted to go because we knew what we were getting into. But she wanted to go anyway, which is truly Megan in a nutshell. We pulled up to the residence, took a deep breath, and all three of us stepped out of the van. This is the story of our last call together, caring for a child. I have no idea what I had been doing this particular day. I imagine working in an ever-stressful environment, running one way or another, not because someone's health and well-being are on the line, but things like, did you order this or did this get done in time for the visitation? Those constant thoughts are screaming in your inner dialogue. Being a funeral director is heavy. Picture working with your spouse now. 
could you do it? Or, or your significant other? I guess you could, but would it be effective, fulfilling? And it's not just living with someone. This is not just cohabitating. This is cohabitating, driving to work, and then working with them. Could you do it? Somehow, in time, Megan and I, we learned to. We're both tough. We both have our ways, and we share it. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. We have realized each other's strengths. I'm the risk taker. I'm the idea guy. I make it happen, and I make it happen quick. Megan's calculated. She's thorough. Both qualities are equally necessary. I am so glad we realized this in a short time. Others in our profession struggle in marriage, actually divorce because of the level of stress in this environment and working together and what all that causes. Anyway, at six months pregnant, women tend to show signs of their pregnancy, fatigue, swelling, just to name a few. I'm no woman or doctor, but it's what I saw. Megan and I, at this moment, are expecting our first. Of course, by this time, we are working the same schedule still. Nights we have visitation, we're together. Could you imagine while many are going on dates to the movies or dinner, Megan and I are standing door for hours at the funeral home. We're greeting visitors of those coming to pay their respects to those they love, folding and presenting new memorial folders, emptying trash together. We were up at all hours of the night too. When the phone rang, whether two people were needed or not, I'd be sure to go when just one was as there was never a reason that a woman be out alone in the middle of the night to tend to the dead. So I would go. And when two were needed, of course, we went together. Nurses, coroners, they all were surprised to see the round pregnant belly followed by Megan and myself. Maybe the decades of men created this element of surprise. Maybe they assumed someone as far along as her would be kicking her feet up by this time. I mean, they were swelling. Nope, not Megan. I learned quickly. You did not tell Megan to slow down. I think there was something lovely about seeing an expectant mother walking up to the house of a grieving family. A sweet woman carrying life, coming to honor the family of someone who no longer is. I don't know. Swollen feet, ankles, never stopped her, ever. And I would be damned to have stepped in. She would tell me, she would tell me when that time was. This day, though, it's almost as if the phone rang differently. And if you are a funeral director, you get this. If you work in a funeral home in any capacity, you probably get this. The phone tends to ring differently when it's a death call. A death call for the common folk of you listening is when a coroner, nurse, family, when they call to notify the funeral home of the death of a loved one 
who has chosen you to care for them. These, these calls more times than not go rather cordial and similar. Any profession or service involving the public and emotion can always throw a wrench though. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Nonetheless, the phone rang differently this particular day. I sensed it. Kim sensed it. Everyone did. I had just walked by the office where Kim sat. We call that the heartbeat of the office. The heartbeat of the funeral home is the office. She was speaking on the phone. I had walked by. I did not break my stride. In passing, though, I heard the phone hang up and Kim say, we have a call. I backtracked and entered the office. Kim said, almost in this whispering voice, it's a little one. Megan was coming up the hall the opposite way that I had just backtracked from. I want to go, she said. I looked at her and asked, are you, are you sure? I got this look. Now, guys, when you question your better half out of support or care, it doesn't matter. If they intend to, they are going to. That's what the look I got said. We nervously walk to the transfer van at this time. The transfer van or vehicle, oftentimes they're vans that look just like the one a mom would carry their kids to in a soccer game or an SUV like a dad would drive or a mom, it doesn't matter. They're supposed to blend in, not raising suspicion of any kind. You know, they don't want to stand out. They're transporting a deceased loved one on a cot in the back. You know, the older transfer vehicles, well, they were actually the hearse. But even those who continue to be, quote unquote, traditional, they have this specific decal or window covering similar to that of the hearse. It's, it's those silver emblems that almost make a swoopy S or a vinyl window covering with the swoopy silver emblem. Trust me, next time you see the swoopy silver emblem, you'll know they're either on their way to or back from caring for the dead. Our grand caravan, it screamed soccer mom. It was awesome. Only our van had a Ferno cot loaded in it, along with boxes of rubber gloves. There were two body bags and a couple of pairs of shoe coverings. All these items are known as what we call PPE, not PPP, which saved us all during a pandemic. They were available for all the many different types of call scenarios. I mean, you'd be amazed and you will hear of some of the scenarios. Shoe coverings, are a lifesaver. So I drove to the residence. Megan and I did a lot of nervous talking. We weren't really informed of any previous circumstances. And oftentimes when we get death calls from professionals and they say, 
they've been ill for a while, or something like, please know this is a sensitive moment, which could allude to suicide. We were absolutely unaware of what we were getting into with this child. We are nervous. I'm so nervous. The ride to the residence from the funeral home, it wasn't long enough. I remember parking the van and Megan arguing with herself on whether she joined me for the first interaction with the family. And the first interaction can be very lovely or it can be very nerve-wracking. This was absolutely neither. It was gut-wrenching. A child, what the hell do you say to the family? One never ever say, I'm sorry for your loss. Really, are you? I challenge you to say things such as, you are loved, I'm honored to know, insert name. God bless you when you go to a visitation. Prayers rising even, be genuine, be honest. I'm sorry for your loss is dead weight. Intentions may be good, I challenge you to think of something different. I walked into the back door. I entered into the kitchen and was greeted by the coroner. To explain, a coroner is dispatched to the scene of a death, you know, where the death occurs while someone is not under the care of a facility, such as a nursing home, a hospital, a hospice facility, even though they are sometimes called there too. So, for example, if a fall at a nursing home causes a death, the coroner would need to be involved in that. Really, there's never this simple scenario. I could throw all kinds of them out there. Hospice facilities don't need a coroner. They don't. The, the loved ones are terminally ill. They're being cared for under the orders of doctors and nurses so they don't need the coroner to sign off on the death. The coroner was here for this particular morning because although this child had been ill for their entire life, they were a kid. A kid. I had never received a sweet child from a residence before. I have gone to the hospital morgue more times than I'd like to admit to receive little babies, victims of accidental drownings, car wrecks, not this. I'm standing in the kitchen and honestly, I am uneasy. I have no idea what's about to happen. I hear crying, faint crying. Of course, <laughs> there's crying. This little one drifted away in their sleep the night prior. And the family, this family is lovely and beautiful, mind you. We're just beside themselves. To explain, the grandmother have spent her days tending to her grandchild. This grandchild needed round-the-clock care. Grandmother never wavered. 
as I'm signing the provisional and all of this is going on around me. And the provisional is a document, for those of you who don't know, it's required by the state of Kentucky and it travels with the loved one throughout the entire care process. Where the paper ends up, it depends on the family's choice for service. So if a family chooses cremation, the crematory, the coroner who signs off, permitting cremation after all documentations on the cremation authorization are signed. And then finally, that would go to the health department, receiving copies of the original of the provisional. If a burial, we take them to the cemetery for record keeping and they send it off to the health department. So that's important to know this. So anytime in the future, provisional, paper. You actually may have seen me sign one if I have cared for you. I always share with families everything that I'm doing, by the way, when I sign these. I think it's important to, you know, I think it's important to say, hey, I'm going to get with Robin, the nurse who has this document called a provisional. It allows me and my family to receive your loved one into our care and will be filed accordingly. There's value in education. It's why I actually am doing this podcast. It's it's why we're the best. I've just finished signing this paperwork. I'd like to think it was Deputy Matthews, but I honestly can't even remember, and it's absurd why I can't. My memory is photographic, which is absolutely annoying. You try it. Try remembering everything. The bad, the embarrassing. Yeah. For those of you who have that and mental health and all those other things to challenge you, I tip my hat. The uncle of the little one walked up. A gentle, sweet man. As he walked up to me in the kitchen, entering from the doorway, the kitchen and the living room connected through this doorway, Megan steps in from the back door to the kitchen. So she comes in as he comes to me. The air, it is thick with grief. You know, humans actually are very nonverbal communicators and most of our communication is nonverbal. I mean, it's absolutely why when you're text messaging, and you actually are stupid enough to choose that route for like a serious conversation because that we assume there's anger or annoyance behind the words when there may not be. So just actually talk face to face so that we can see your nonverbal cues on your face, you know, write that down. I turn and I look at Megan and she knows what I'm asking her without even making a noise. And her glance back to me is yes, Now let's take care of him already. The uncle and I were exchanging conversations, scheduling times to gather as a family to support each other and discuss how we're going to celebrate this little fella. I promised him, I promised the ladies that were beginning to swarm he and I on the same. They literally created almost a a circle to hear everything that we said. In this moment, 
any wall that they had up in defense that had come down. They literally let us in, and not just into the residence. They let us in. They knew at this moment they did not have to be overly protective of their little one for fear if we're good enough or worthy enough, gentle enough, caring enough to help because they knew that we were all of those things. Megan and I received permission from the family, we always do, to go to the vehicle to retrieve our cot. We do not ever spring things upon people. And a cot, picture an ambulance, and then in the ambulance is a gurney, but our cot, it's not as advanced with those automatic collapsing legs and the wheels, the yellow, I think it's yellow. Our cot is a simple silver cot. Collapsible wheels, yes. Two buckles to reverently hold the loved one on the bed and the cot cover itself. Many funeral homes, I want to point this out, for the longest time used these disgustingly ugly zip-up bags. Maroon mostly, sometimes gray, heavy, cold bags. I don't know how else to explain them. Who'd want to see that? I mean, really. Not me. Not you listening. We actually have a family that sews quilt covers for us. Looks like a really pretty blanket. Gold, navy. It's like one of those really cute quilts that your grandmother would have. It's draped over the back of the corner of her love seat sitting in the living room that no one ever sits in. Yeah, you can picture that. There's a perfectly placed white pillow on the top of this folded quilt, buckled by the straps of the cot. That is our cot. At the back of the van, I placed two pairs of rubber gloves into my suit jacket pocket. And I want to let you know, being on call with someone, your partner, not even if you're married to them, you actually develop little quirks when you work with them. And being my wife, I knew that she never had a pocket for her phone or gloves or anything. So, you know, my pocket would suffice. So I would always grab gloves for Megan. We're ready to get this started. We're at the back of the van. Both of us at this point have tears in our eyes. I continually am asking Megan, I'm saying, can you do this? Can you do this? And it's not at all because I doubt her. It's not because she's pregnant with our first child, but all of that comes with those things. It's If you have never experienced it, moms and moms-to-be immediately develop this instinct. I, you call it, you know it as motherly instinct. Their abilities to be in tune with and to feel for are heightened forever. Megan assures me she can. 
out the cot comes from the van. By this time, there's a crowd that's gathered. Concerned neighbors, kids on bikes. Everyone knows something solemn is happening. And whatever was previously on the schedule, up their sleeves, whatever, it did not matter as much. In these moments, I am reminded people are genuinely good people. Personally, these moments for me are moments of grace and peace. I hold on to those moments. Megan is now leading the cot down the sidewalk in the front. I'm in the back or head end, and I'm steering the wheels. And they click over every crack in the sidewalk sections. We arrive at the back door of the residence, and the coroner holds the glass door open. Megan enters first reverently. The family is standing through the kitchen doorway in the living room. The lights in the living room are off. Windows are drawn. And I remember some cartoon on mute was flickering color on the walls. We begin to prepare the cot by taking our time, removing the pillow, the quilt, the two perfectly pressed white bed sheets that we had placed underneath the quilt. I release one set of the buckles. She, Megan, releases the second set. And just as we are about to collapse the cot on either end, we are asked to leave it up. Of course, of course we did. It's very important to let you know this in every other case, every case. Since then, before then, I have always taken a look as to where someone is located. Back room, bathroom, kitchen, are they on the couch? Are they on the floor? So that you can prepare as to how you are going to conduct care. There's a lot of lifting and pooling and strategy involved. We don't choose where someone passes away. We had not this particular time because I knew where we were going. We were going upstairs. It's where the faded and constant crying was coming from. I had looked at the uncle and asked for permission to go to the Holy of Holies. He nodded, and slowly, I walk up. At the top of the stairs was the baby's bedroom, perfectly framed, door open, toys, cars, colorful. It was a kid's dream room, honestly. A big kid bed them lying there forever asleep being held hair rubbed and kissed upon I knelt down by the family placing my hand on theirs and I assured them of gentle exceptional care 
a nonverbal communication happened and grandmother was not going to leave and I did not want her to. I wanted her to continue what she had always done before and to help. Grandma gently, tenderly lifted the child from the bed in her arms and brought them down the stairs. Me walking in front, one step after the other. The family and Megan weren't expecting this selfless, beautiful act. Heartfelt, holy, somber. I turned after the banister. I made eye contact with Megan, still standing on her end of the cot, and we cried. Everyone did. We shouldn't be doing this, but we were, but we must. Grandma placed the child on the cot that we were told not to collapse. The little one was barely half the size of the cot. Another reminder that this is not normal. We are supposed to grow up, grow old, and die. How unfair. The gloves that I had placed in my pocket were useless to me by this point. I wouldn't have even put them on, just so you know, if I needed to. Megan and I asked to help with placement, to which we were granted permission. Megan worked to straighten the ankles of the pajama pants. They were green, actually. Ninja Turtles. And I pulled the pajama top down, reverently straightening the fabric. Safely, we buckled the straps. Like a child being tucked in at night, we placed the sheet up to the chest. I hugged every person in the room. Megan, too. I mean, at this point, we are all family now. I won't share the personal exchanges that we had with our new family. That's forever ours. I will say they know our love for them in that moment and to this day. Just think of the powerful opportunities funeral directors have to connect, to truly connect, to significantly impact and make a difference. Fast forwarding, back in the van with our precious, precious little one, Megan, wiping tears as we travel east on 4th Street back to the home, said nothing. Not a thing. That, that was our last call together.
there's not really any way to end this episode. Maybe a little instrumental music. I would venture to say you need to go hug somebody, maybe. Or have a deeper appreciation for those grieving and those of us who take care of you and those who are grieving. We'll see you at the next one. I told you. It can get tough in here. Take care.